Welcome to Enscope, the healthcare security podcast. Each episode, we bring you interviews, technical tips, and a unique point of view on the challenges facing the ever-changing healthcare ecosystem. Here's your host, Mike Murray. Hello again, and welcome to this week's episode of Inscope, the Healthcare Cybersecurity Podcast. As always, I'm Mike Murray. With me today, I'm really excited about this one. With me today is someone who I've known for a long time, and he's one of the most interesting people in the security industry. Bill Pelletier was actually Scope's first employee other than me. He now is off doing other interesting things. Bill is one of the most interesting people I've known because he is the only person I've ever met who has worked on medical devices, has worked at a payer, has worked at a company like ours, and has also spent so much time deep into healthcare because Bill's wife, Tracy, is in healthcare and runs a healthcare practice. And so there's almost no one I've ever met who has the breadth and depth of experience that Bill has. And so he's my favorite advisor and also one of my favorite people on the planet to just have a glass of whiskey with, shoot the breeze about the world of security as it happens to be. So, Bill, welcome to the podcast, finally. Mike, I'm glad to be here, finally. And apologize for the clinking ice cubes. I'll keep those to a minimum. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. You and me both, man. You and me both. So, so this is going to be a good time. But we recently came into 2021. And actually, we also recently posted our 2021 predictions podcast, which I don't think I, I made you listen to yet. But that's where I want to start. I mean, you're my favorite curmudgeon in the whole world. What is the world of 2021 for all of us cybersecurity folks in healthcare going to look like? Well, you know, I'm going to really probably irritate the crap out of you and say it will be the great supply chain chase uh, by our security vendor community, right? I mean, I hate to even say that because it's going to come back to haunt me. But all you're going to hear for the next six months and the entire year is supply chain this and supply chain that. I mean, it is, it's the target of sales opportunity right now. I, and we know this, I and mean, everybody in the industry knows this, or at least those of us who have been around for more than a few years. The products that we have out in this space today, not just supply chain, security, whatever, but in the security space, the vast majority of those, I'll stop short of saying all because there are some that are different, but the vast majority exist because of singular specific events, right? There's been nothing that I've known of that's ever been developed, deployed and sold to be a broad spectrum security solution. Everything out there serves a purpose. And that's why we have so much of it. And that's why there's so much of it that we don't use. I wonder how many vendors are popping up right now trying to solve the SolarWinds hack. Yeah, I'll check my LinkedIn profile the day after this airs and I'll let you know. Uh, I've been fortunate in that I've been at my current gig not that long. The folks haven't quite figured out where I'm at yet, but I've only seen one or two ambulance calls so far regarding supply chain hacks. So that's, that's that's a reflection of that. They haven't found you yet. I've got 50 in my email and I don't even have a security title anymore. Right. I'm I'm the CEO and they're sending me things like that. Yep. Yep. The other part of it too, is a lot of these cold calls is because I know these people, right? These are, these are not strangers for the most part. They're folks I've dealt with for the last 25 years. I've gone through four companies in the last 25 years, and they've gone through you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different companies. Right? Just you know, the business cards change. Yeah, that's our industry, right? 
It is. It is. And one of those things where in my current current situation, we, we have a lot of the usual suspects in that space, you know, vendor-wise. Probably should stop talking right there as far as that goes. But, <laughs> but you know, it, it's a thing, right? It, it's it's how we have to exist. It's, there's nothing I can do to snap my fingers and make it all go away. Right? Because it's all sunk caught. Mm-hmm. But we have it. It's on a shelf. Parts are being used. Right? Good parts are being used. But. So I want to pick on the supply chain thing. So we were both at GE Healthcare back in the day working on medical devices. The amazing thing for me about this whole supply chain conversation is it seems to be focused on the software side of supply chain. But when you think about medical device manufacturers, supply chain is a huge challenge for those folks. Share what you saw. Talk about some of those challenges, man. Yeah, I mean, you know, software is one thing, right? So whether you're using, you know, COTS stuff in the commercial off-the-shelf software or open source, right? you know, Linux or Linux variants, what have you. But that's one thing. And you know, depending on who you talk to, you know, the whole software digital bill of materials efforts that are underway may help slash will help address some of those challenges, at least helping people understand what they have in their environments. I'm waving my hands in the air if you can't see them. The more interesting aspect, the more academic aspect though is what about the hardware stuff? What about the firmware stuff, right? Up until probably, this is all anecdotal, up until maybe 10 or 15 years ago, the vast majority of, of medical devices were custom hardware, custom chipsets, custom built boards, right? There was nothing that you could go to a, a supply warehouse or a, or a distributor and say, I need 20 of these and 30 of those. You built the things yourself because you had to. When PCs became widely available, when minis became widely available, these manufacturers realized, hey, I can get 80% of the functionality with off-the-shelf hardware at one-tenth of the cost, right? And the, the 20% functionality that I'm missing, I'll figure out how to do that, either with software tweaks or what have you, which a lot of folks do. What does that bring us, right? It brings us to a situation where we now have hardware embedded in systems, kind of a redundant phrase, but that you may not necessarily know what else is in there, right? And Anytime that you've got, it's like a long rambling rant here. I think anytime you have unknown hardware in your communication path, there's going to be the risk of data loss, data leakage, right? And you're just not going to see it. I think that's one of the things that blows my mind about some of the software bill of materials stuff is software bill of materials is a great idea. Don't get me wrong. I'm not challenging that. I, I've been a big proponent of that over the years, but you can only include so much. You can't include all like the software bills and materials that I've seen. They don't include what firmware is on the graphics card, right? What firmware is on the BIOS. You can only include so much detail. And unfortunately, security is an edge case, right? It is. And you know, even if you could get close to 99% coverage with your, your s I love that term, but S-bomb is a, it's a great term, by the way. It sounds kind of cool to say S-bomb and we talk about software. Even if you get a high coverage rate with identification, what do you do with it? Right? Now you're going to say either, holy crap, what do I do with this, all this old crap that I have when you know that you can't change it? Or, you know, does that increase your liability? I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's one of those old uh, beer drinking stories we used to you have in the security space is, is it better to lay everything out so everybody knows what you have so you can 
better prepare for it or do you keep things really close to home? I don't know. There's the old saw of security by obscurity, right? But the thing about security by obscurity is there's still an amount of security in it. And we tend to discount that. It's always a really, a really interesting first step to take, right? As long as it's not the only step, it's, it's a good thing to do as long as you're doing many more things after that, right? It just, it just raises the bar and makes it a bit more difficult. Dude, you laid out a really important point there that I think is easy to miss that the what do you do with it problem, right? Suppose I bought a CT scanner in 2005 and it's running some old library of some version of Java beans because Java beans was a thing back then. Most hospitals I know are not going to throw out and go acquire a new $5 million machine just because of some old version of a library that happens to exist on a bill of materials from an old piece of hardware. I'm not suggesting we bury our heads in the sand, of course, and it's useful to know if you can manage it. But sometimes, and I remember some of the original SBOM arguments back in a prior life, which is, you know, okay, great, you've got this list of things. What good is it? Right. I mean, you and I sat in on some of those calls with, with the NTIA and whatnot when they were first started talking about this, what, five years ago at this point? Yep. Like, uh, with Alan Freeman and Josh Corman and others. Josh basically told me to, you know, hey, let's talk about this offline because I've talked too much enough on the phone. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully you're here this at some point. But yeah, it's like, what, what do you do with it? Right? I mean, this is, this is a maturity conversation, right? I mean, you have all this data, but, you know, am I CMMI one, am I, you know, three, am I five? I mean, what do I do with it? Right? You know, I suppose you could deal with it from a, a risk calculation perspective. I, I don't know. I'd like to be able to say that if you have a, a high quality you know, or a high assurance level of your data quality in the rest bomb that you could you know, say, right, I know exactly what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to you know, plan all of my you know, vulnerability mitigations around that. But nobody has the staff to do that, right? Certainly not in healthcare. Not in healthcare, they don't. Maybe if you're Bank of America and you have 5,000 people on your security team, you have that ability. But like we were talking offline about one of the folks that we're working with, we're the major hospital uh, up here in the Northeast, that their entire security team is two people and they have a thousand medical devices on their network. What are you going to do? Like, are they going to go read the S-bombs for every one of those machines? Are they going to, are they even going to have time to mechanically process those, ingest them all into some system and then do something with them? Unless you have some sort of advanced data processing system that, you know, up till a year and a half ago didn't exist. How do you even deal with that? Yeah, it's, I feel bad for a lot of, a lot of teams or I say teams and individuals, because in many cases, it's a, like you said, it's an individual. No matter how much data you give them, there is not going to be any ability for them to, any capability for them to do that. I mean, they have the ability to do it, but it's just, it's a capacity issue, right? So it's a resource issue. It's all about resources. I mean, I have that conversation every single day, right? If I say, no, you really should be doing things this way, then the, the developer slash project manager slash business sponsor comes back and says, well, my one or two person data analytics uh, person or team, it's going to take them 12 months to do that. Okay, what if you had six people? What if you had 12 people? Could you do it in one month or two months? Well, yes. I say, well, okay, let's let's do the cost benefit, right? What What's going to be better for you? Spend the money up front? Get it done quicker, get your product in, in, into production quicker so you can get more money? Or do you string it out and then run the risk of 
priorities changing because priorities will always change, right? And if you get eight tenths of the mile down the road, you may never make that that last, you know, almost quarter mile because stuff changes. I don't know how I go off on that tangent, but that's really <laughs> important. It's an important tangent. I think we tend to forget, especially in this, you know, in the security community and on security Twitter, we tend to forget that there's a pragmatic realism to the amount of resources that can be applied to a given problem, right? Those resources are finite. There's never enough. And if someone does think they have enough resources, then there's something else wrong, right? They're not seeing the right things or you get a serious management issue, right? I think there's a thing about senior managers, especially now that I kind of am one, right? You know, there's a thing about senior managers wanting to be able to do 12 months of work in three months because that's what the business, you know, the business says we have to get this project done by X date. And you're like, well, that's humanly impossible with the number of resources we have. So what do we cut? And far too often in the past, especially, you know, especially back when we first worked together, you know, 15 years ago or so, Back then, the idea of like, oh, we're just going to, you know, we're going to not do this because security, that just wasn't an option, right? And especially if you think about the medical devices that were built from 2000 to 2014 when the first FDA guidance comes out. Yep. Uh, what do you do? Yeah, you just brought up another painful point. Um, <laughs> it, it is, I was going to say it's 2020. It's now 2021. It was a great year while it lasted. Uh, seven days in. We are still bolting stuff. We are still treating security in air quotes as not so much as an afterthought anymore, right? Because that has changed in many cases, right? So security is being taken into account, but it is still being treated as an additional component, right? And not part of your baseline and not something that is spread across all aspects of that thing that you're doing, whether it's development, deployment, operations, SecOps, DevSecOps, Sec, you know, DevSecOps, Sec, DevOps. I mean, pick a combination, right? Pick, pick a combination of syllables and put them together, and, and it's still going to be a challenge, right? Kind of looping back to you know predictions for the year, in, in addition to the supply chain uh, stuff. I think we're going to see more conversations around. I hope we see more conversations around what it means to embed security at all layers, at all aspects of product, project, system, life cycles, right? You know, all of the above. And I'm waving in the air with my hands again, but that's one of those things that really is going to bear fruit for us. Not to use a, a bad analogy, but like, we shouldn't, shouldn't do that. But we have to keep pressing that really hard with, with, team, with our various teams, whether it's operations or development or and or the business. You know, this stuff is not optional, right? You can risk crank it, right? You can, abs- you can risk assess it, you can risk accept things, and you can do stuff with it, but it has to be done up front, right? You, you can't have somebody come to you and say, yep, I'm done with my product, can you uh, give me an assessment and give me your sign off? Like, no, 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 no. That was like 1998. This is 2021. Things don't work like that anymore. You know who you sound like right now? I really don't want to know. (laughs) You sound like our old friend, Rich Sireson. Yeah, I was reading an article that Rich wrote the other day about the importance of, and forgive the buzzword of shift left, right? 
But that's what you're talking about. You're talking about embedding security as a discipline early in the process and making sure that if you embed it from the beginning, that it's a practice that goes across the entire life cycle. It's not something that you remember the old days. We get to the end of 12 or 18 months of development. Here, you got two weeks for a pen test. Figure it out. And by the way, don't find anything because you delay our launch. Yeah. Or if you do find stuff, don't make sure you rank it or risk it such that it's not not a stop. Right. Nothing's critical. I mean, you and I have lived through that conversation with senior leadership. We have over and over and over again. It is, again, it's about expectation setting. You know, you, you say it's going to take three weeks for an engagement to do your full assessment. And you're putting me into your schedule four weeks before your shift date. That's not going to work out very well. It might, but I doubt it. You know, it's entirely possible that you will ship a product with no faults, right? But I highly doubt it. You know, I, and why we think that shipping products with exceptions as a feature is beyond me. I, I mean, I think there's a piece of humanity that is optimistic to a fault. And I think that the security industry is anathema to that sort of generic optimism of, I will build something and it will be right the first time. And it's our job to be the ones that raise our hands and say, hey, you know, it's probably not right the first time. With that, I want to I want to take you in a different direction just to hear your thoughts on this. So, I mean, we've lived on we've lived on all the sides of it, right? We've lived on medical devices. We've lived in the architecture side. We've lived in response. If you're a hospital CISO, put your hospital CISO hat on. What are you focused on for 2021? Oh boy. You know, if I'm reading the trade rags like it should be, ransomware is going to be the top of my list still, which is a little ironic, I think, because that is becoming a target of opportunity at that point. You're still not really a targeted, really not a, a direct target. But these, these are all drive-bys. I, I think, huh, that's an interesting question. You know, with, with the adoption of telehealth, with the, with the adoption of remote work, with all this stuff going on, there's a lot more data uh, outside of your envelope now. That, that this just didn't exist exist this way a year ago. Yes, there are pockets of it. Now, if you're a medical practice or, or a hospital system with say, 10,000 users, you know, before COVID, you may have had 8,000 of those were within the confines of your crunchy exterior perimeter, right? Now the vast majority of those folks are at Starbucks or in their home office or, you know, surfing for Wi-Fi down the street, right? This is all stuff that now is out in the breeze. I would be seriously worried. Don't worry. I'm going to be more concerned about my endpoint security than I ever have been in the past. My device is going, were they talking to, uh, are they on VPN? Am I, am I doing split tunneling? Am I keeping them patched? Oh, they're Windows machines. Oh, well, if you're on VPNs, maybe they don't necessarily connect to the domain the same way. So you don't get policy object pushes like you would if you were on the internal network. All of this stuff comes into play now, right? That didn't exist a year ago. I quoted often, you were on the call when we talked to uh, a healthcare CIO in the middle of the whole first wave of COVID who said, we underwent three years of digital transformation in six weeks. Yep, yep, exactly. Right, and so it's funny if you, you know, if you follow the podcast and everyone's heard me talk about the three environments of a healthcare organization, the IT environment, the clinical environment, and the EMR, I'm more and more 
cautiously starting to talk about that as five environments, right? Your traditional IT environment, your clinical environment, your EMR. Now you have your employees' homes, which is what you're talking about. And more and more, especially during the pandemic and telehealth and things like that, now you also have your patients' homes, right? We're pushing medical devices to the home. We're pushing in telehealth. The patients are literally getting care from their cell phone while they're in a Starbucks talking to your doctor while they're in their Starbucks, right? Like this is not something a healthcare organization's ever had to think about before. It's insane. I mean, I, you know, I sit here in my home office. I've been full remote now for almost six years right at this point. I was 18 years in a corporate campus office and then six years now uh, working out of the house. So I've got three laptops on my desk. I've got three 27-inch monitors arrayed in the typical you know, cockpit orientation here, never really quite knowing which one I'm looking at when I'm talking to somebody. And I actually had a, a personal telehealth call the other day with my provider. She was working out of her house with her cell phone propped up on a book on her desk. Yep. I'm the patient with you know six feet of monitor and, and multiple laptops on my desk, and she's working with a cell phone, right? What's wrong with that picture? Right. Probably not a lot of security issues there in, in general, but it, it's indicative of the state of the industry as to what we say we, what, what the HDOs, or the healthcare delivery organizations, are working with for, for technology to continue to provide these necessary services. The world is definitely getting crazy. All right. Question I love to ask, where do you see it all going? You look three, four years out into the future. What does healthcare security look like? And from whatever perspective, from the payers, from the providers, from all of it. You've worked in property and casualty insurance as as we worked together in it years ago. I spent 18 years in in that space. Health insurance, working now working for a payer. The model isn't much different, right? It's it's the same thing. You've got policyholders, you've got claims provisioning, claims processing, and lots and lots of data. Right in our case, it's all PHI, because that's by definition, it's all PHI. Yeah, you know, where's it going? I I don't want to be snarky about it and say it's all going to the moon via the cloud, but cost pressures in the insurance space, regardless of the industry, are intense. Not to go off on a tangent, but you know, in, in the property and casualty space, when someone you know, complains about their, or has a conversation about their the cost of their auto insurance, say I'm paying you know, $1,000 a year for my premium, then when you explain to that person, well, it's costing an insurance company $1,030 a year to provide that insurance to you. And, and they say, well, that doesn't make any sense. They're losing money on my insurance policy. And the answer is, sort of. Right? They're taking your policy dollars that you pay them, they're investing that, and rather than getting $30 back in the thousand, they're getting $35 back in the thousand. Right? So off that thousand dollars you pay them a year, they're making five bucks. That's how insurance works. It's no different in the healthcare space. Although in the healthcare space, you've got the additional dimension of negotiated rates between the providers and the payer, customers, clients, patients, members, whatever you want to call them. So there is a, a bit more complexity to the cost factor, but it's still a razor thin margin, right? Which is very dependent upon catastrophic events and whatnot. So kind of where am I going with this rambling thought here? It's all about cost cutting, all about cost reduction. How do you do that? 
we go to the cloud, right? We go to resources that don't cost as much, they're more flexible, they're more fungible, they're a bit more predictable from an expense perspective. So great, let's go to the cloud. But the most companies do when they go from on-prem to the cloud, they lift, they lift and shift, and they lift and drop, right? Which is architecturally, security-wise, performance-wise, is the absolute worst thing you can do, except that it's the cheapest way to do it. So where do I see things heading? Everything's going to the cloud, right? It, once you get beyond your core claims type processing, everything's going to be an API, right? It's going to be rich client experience in the, in the web. You're going to have, like we did years ago with, with the insurance company in our prior life, we did shove a bunch of JavaScript down the browser and that becomes your application, right? Everything's just an API in the back end, you know, it's a single page app. That's where everything's going. The challenges for us are going to be how do we help those development teams and those, those software teams design the right structures to ensure the same level of integrity or better than what they would get with a traditional multi-tiered you know, web app database. Yeah, right? That's 2021, probably up the next five years. That transition is going to keep moving. I think by the time we get to 2025, 2026, you're going to see the vast majority of applications, even internal ones, are going to be nothing more than a browser and a bunch of API endpoints. Yeah. To me, being an old curmudgeon type guy, it's scary as hell. But that's the way things are going. We absolutely must not create an impediment to the business process, right, in that regard. Like, we have to support that. We have to figure out how to deal with it. We have to figure out how to enable teams to design to that model. We should be always about enablement and not hindrances. It's really funny that you say this. I mentioned the predictions podcast earlier and in our predictions podcast, and I don't remember if it was John or Jeremy who said this, but one of them said that they believe that the, one of the big trends of 2021 for healthcare was going to be API security. And I didn't, question them on it at the time. But to me, that feels early, right? But everybody I talk to is talking about these massive data lake projects, these massive data sharing projects between, especially between payers and providers, right? And so you end up with this incredibly rich data ecosystem with people passing things back and forth across APIs. And unfortunately, especially in the provider space, the provider space is not, no healthcare organization that I've ever been in could be mistaken for Facebook in terms of being a tech company, right? DevSecOps is not really a thing in healthcare delivery the way it is in financial services, right? But you're right. As we move to this much more data heavy and data integrated world, all of our healthcare organizations are going to have to figure this out. So maybe you all are right. And I'm the old stodgy guy who's like, oh, no, that's that's three years off. No, it's probably not. You guys are probably much more on the ball than I am for that. Yeah, in the healthcare space, it gets more complicated. I shouldn't say it's all complicated, but the theory behind going to these types of designs is you know, rather than building this big monolithic, you know, compile it, and ship it monstrosity of an application, you change bits and pieces, you change a page, you change a screen, you change a field, right? And you can do it on the fly and not have to deploy everything you know, all at once. It upends the traditional waterfall process model 
when you start looking at things, at least in the, the healthcare space or in the payer space, I mean, uh, two words, right? Actually, an acronym, a word, CMS interoperability. Right? If you haven't heard about that, you should look it up because it's scary as heck. It's about you as a patient being able to log into your payer site, your payer portal, or even to your HDO portal, right, to your healthcare provider portal, and say, I'm going to give Dr. Mike Murray access to all my stuff. Click. Sounds simple. Holy hell, it's not simple, right? Because you're not just talking about uh, your data from your healthcare provider, you're talking about data from health, your healthcare provider, your healthcare insurer. And if you're a person like me who has their PCP in one state, but their primary care insurer is in a different state, now you've got two completely disparate EMRs to work with who also have to work interoperate with each other, it becomes almost... I don't use the word impossible very often, but this one's pretty close. It becomes almost impossible to have a monolithic structure that works with all those things. It just doesn't work that way. So API is the only way you can do it. Right? Daisy chain things together. You know, I'm sure there are some EMR vendors who are not very happy at the truth bomb that you just dropped on them there. I, you know, EMRs for the most part are still these old school, albeit modern technology, but old school monolithic, non-interoperable structures, even though that's what HIPAA told them to do back in 1990 or 1990-something, right? Almost 25 years ago. Almost 25 years ago, and they still haven't done it. I didn't say they haven't figured it out because figuring it out is extraordinarily easy. They just haven't done it. I mean, there's a benefit to data lock-in, right? And I think that, that we have... Though we trumpet the idea of interoperability, I mean, the security industry has been this way for a long time. I mean, we've tried to force interoperability with things like CVE and uh, CVSS and Oval and all the, I'm literally just listing all the MITRE projects that we've ever, we've ever worked with, but we've been trying to force that same thing. And you, you still find security vendors find one common name for a threat actor across our industry. Even something as simple as what is the GRU from Russia called? Every vendor's got their own name. Yeah, they're all different. Right? And it's the same thing in healthcare. It's the same thing in security. It's the same thing everywhere. The only thing I can think of off the top of my head that comes close in security or, or IT that, that's common is something like LDIF, right? You're talking about directories? Yeah. LDIF is pretty common, right? You know, that has to be. Above and beyond that, all bets are off. Right, exactly. Dude. Thank you so much. So hold on, before we wrap this up, where can the world find you? Where, you know, if the world wants more Bill Pelletier? On Twitter at AWPIII. Not two eyes, it's three eyes. And that's a long story behind that one. Actually, in Facebook, it's the same thing. Just search for Bill Pelletier. On LinkedIn, same thing, Bill Pelletier. And I think between those three, I'm, I'm pretty accessible. And drinking with me at some conference once we're able to go back to conferences. Absolutely. You know, for as much as I have really enjoyed and I'm excited about the, the amount and breadth of remote content that all the traditional conference providers have come up with, especially the small ones, there is still that aspect of face-to-face meet and greet 
sit down in the bar or a restaurant somewhere or out on a park bench in San Francisco or wherever to talk about how we're solving the world's problems. I miss that hardly. You and me both, man. All right. Well, with that, this has been another episode of InScope. Bill, thank you so much. We'll do this again sometime in a couple of months and just catch up on the world. And I'm sure there's always going to be interesting news to, for us to chat about. So with that, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of InScope. To make sure you never miss an episode, hop on over to www.scopesecurity.com to sign up. Or you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And if you have ideas for topics, guests, or technical tips, please contact us at podcast at scopesecurity.com.